1: following the Supreme Court decision giving the uh, President Trump's administration uh, leeway to enforce certain parts of their travel ban. Uh, we are going to see some of that implemented starting at 8 p.m. tonight, Eastern Time. Uh, and we're getting a little bit more of a sense of what the guidelines are for what the close relationships are uh, for people who will be allowed into the country for more and some of the ramifications of this travel ban. I want to bring in Brian Egger. He's senior gaming and lodging analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us here in the Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Brian, I want to start first with a sense of how much, if at all, uh, tourism people just visiting the country or people mm-hmm. uh, uh, moving here has been affected by the proposition of the travel ban and some of the rhetoric that we've heard out of the administration. So I think you want to
2: parse between the direct effects and the indirect effects. Directly, the impact has been to date pretty limited. Remember, the top source markets from the Middle East coming to the U.S. are Israel, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, clearly not affected by this. Uh, The Middle East, even if you throw in Mexico, where there's been travel concerns, uh, those source markets are less than 1%. Of the hotel stays for companies like Hilton, so it's it's compar- comparatively speaking a small portion. The bigger concern is the indirect effects. You know whether it's the stronger U.S. dollars or broader travel policy concerns. Marriott, for example, has seen uh, inbound arrivals from markets like Mexico and the Middle East down 20%. That's in a in a market where inbound international travel overall is flat. Those source markets have seen. Declines in inbound travel. Hard to tell whether that's from currency. What period is that? Uh, I think that's rough, more or less this year compared, compared to last year, year. exactly. Uh, and they made that comment recently at an industry conference. So hard to tell whether that's coming from a stronger dollar or the general broader concern that the U.S. is somehow riskier or less hospitable uh, to travelers. But it does raise concerns, and those concerns have have been articulated by hotel executives.
0: Is there any uh, evidence to suggest, Brian, that maybe there is a positive effect, that people will feel that being in the United States as a tourist destination is a safer, more secure environment?
2: Um, there is that possibility. The offset is if you are a group travel planner overseas and you're trying to locate people at a future event Uh, In the United States and your alternative choice is having an event in Canada or elsewhere that the U.S. might be perceived to be somewhat riskier if there is a possibility some of your prospective group visitors might not be able to enter the country.
1: What have some of the hotel executives been saying that they're doing to counter uh, this effect or are they? Do they have any control over it?
2: Uh, limited control over things like policy directly, but I was at the NYU Hospitality Conference a couple weeks ago. A lot of talk about brand America and trying to publicize the brand of the United States being open for business for travelers. The fear they have is there's another lost decade of travel, much as what we had after 9-11, where uh, for a variety of reasons, there might be a reduction in inbound visits to the United States.
0: The labor implications are also uh, worth noting because this, as you just described, uh, may have an effect on employment trends from people from Mexico. That, and they that, That's true. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that uh, in states like Nevada, Nevada employs a large number of workers in the hospitality industry, where according to uh, Pew and other uh, research poll organizations there's some evidence that a large percentage of those individuals may be undocumented. so if there were to be more stringent enforcement or focus on those on those rules, uh, difficult to quantify but that could potentially affect or disrupt the labor pool if it reduces the labor to tool- pool could uh, actually potentially result in an increase in labor costs because of a reduction in supply of workers much of that is based on uh, speculation but you know those are the broader concerns if in fact that particular uh, topic gets more scrutiny
0: Well, I don't know if you got a chance to see this story, but this comes out of Washington, out of the Post there. Uh, Apparently, there is a restaurant in Baltimore, uh, which was visited by immigration and customs enforcement agent demanding the papers of the people that worked at this dockside uh, restaurant. It's called Boathouse Canton. And uh, as a result of demanding uh, these papers, all 30 workers quit the staff so they were I mean the kitchen staff resigned as a re, as a result of this so uh, the implications can not just be you know large- scale changes in tourism and travel but can affect very uh, specific businesses this way Absolutely.
1: Well, you know, I have to wonder, though, the hotel industry is under other pressure aside from the immigration ban from specific countries uh, and and just the general geopolitical environment. But it's being, you know, seriously challenged by Airbnb and -hmm. other disintermediation sites that are looking to pair people uh, with homes that happen to be vacant. I mean, do you have a sense of whether perhaps hotel executives are using this as an excuse to cover for maybe business they've lost.
2: Uh, I wouldn't say it's an excuse, but again, it's difficult when you see declines in travel from certain uh, non-U.S. source markets, whether that's related to something specifically like currency or a structural industry change, or it's related to travel policy. It's somewhat difficult to stay. I mean, the lodging cycle is maturing. Room rate growth is slowing down. Uh, some of that is largely cyclical. Uh, certainly the hotel industry has been adapting to the reality of competition from Um, entities like Airbnb. And then, of course, you have this overlay of uncertain travel policies from the U.S. government. So it's difficult to parse in terms of which of these effects are having the most discernible impact, but certainly uh, they they all come into play
0: here. I want to thank you very much for coming in and sharing this information with us. Brian Egger is our Senior Gaming and Lodging Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence speaking about the uh, travel ban that uh, the partial travel ban that is expected to go into force at 8 p.m. You know, Eastern. You
1: Pim, I'm still taken by what Brian said that some of the big hotel executives said that uh, visits from people from the Middle East and Mexico were down 20% year well, over it's, year. Uh,
0: it's presenting a challenge and I just want to offer a footnote having to do with that restaurant in baltimore the boathouse Uh, the uh, owner says every worker had passed the restaurant's vetting process and appeared to be in the united states legally so just to give you that detail
1: Uh, Pim, there was a fascinating story today on the Bloomberg talking yes. about uh, the IRS probing this chronic disease fund, which is...
0: to a non right? Yeah. Tax-exempt status, and it has to do with, the uh, well, a couple of companies that are involved in this. Celgene, Genentech, Novartis, and Bayer. And here to tell us more, we've got Robert Langreth. He is uh, our uh, expert when it comes to healthcare reporting. Robert, thanks very much for being with us. Maybe you could describe how is it that these companies are connected to this nonprofit, and what is the IRS saying about their participation?
3: Well, so there are these, these charities that have sprung up in the wake uh, about 10 years ago when the Medicare drug benefits came about. There are these charities that have sprung up that essentially help patients uh, pay for their co-pays for really expensive drugs for cancer and multiple sclerosis. And these charities, uh, it turns out, are largely funded by the drug makers themselves. Uh, but they're spo- uh, uh, And it turns out that and there's controversy over, you know, over are these are these cherries essentially you know helping you know by paying for patients copays and and medicare and other government programs are they essentially you know helping the government uh helping the drug makers, you know, bill Medicare for some really, really expensive drugs and helping drug makers keep up prices very, very high. So one of these charities, it turns out, uh, we found out that the uh, U.S. Internal Revenue Service opened a probe into its tax-exempt status. And they are essentially, uh, from the court filings that you can tell, the IRS is looking at, uh, you know, whether – the charity was a quote, conduit for drug makers and was giving impermissible benefits to its corporate donors and What that means, according to one of the tax experts we looked at is that essentially uh, the IRS is exploring and, uh, whether whether the uh, the charity essentially um, may have operated more like instead of being a real tax charity for the public may have operated more like you know but in effect more like a marketing arm arm of their drug company donors
1: right. Well, Robert, let me let me just try to um, make sure that I understand the flow of cash here. So pharmaceutical companies set up a nonprofit organization to help poor people uh, obtain medications that otherwise might be too expensive for them. And as part of this uh, program, the nonprofit seeks any reimbursements that it could get from Medicaid or Medicare, as well as donations from who?
3: Yeah, so basically someone, the pharmaceutical company does not set up a charity. The charity like is spo- is supposed to be, and they say they are, uh, independent. And this, this charity, Chronic Disease Fund, says it, it is, quote, fully independent. But it turns out that in 2011, the year that the IRS analyzed, you know, almost all its donations were from drug companies. Uh, and... Uh, and it turns out, and these donations were earmarked for specific disease funds, and it often it often turned out that you know, that. Uh, the, the, that a large, the vast majority of the money that the dominant donor would give would essentially flow back to patients taking the donor company's drugs.
0: 95 percent, so, right, Robert? 95 percent. Right? What what but what I, what I, just to ask you more specifically, so if you're a company and you donate money to a tax-exempt organization, you get the deduction for making that contribution, Correct. Supposedly, yeah. Okay, so now you've got a tax deduction, but it's almost like a washing machine, a spin cycle, because the money goes to the nonprofit, but then the nonprofit uses that very money to actually buy the drugs from the company that gave the money in the first place.
3: See, so The nonprofit uses the money to help patients. Uh, getting to pay their copays for drugs for that disease, and yes, the IRS analysis showed that most patients in many of these funds, like for example, uh, Celgene was a big donor for a fund for multiple myeloma, but it turned out that 94.5 percent in 2011 of the money the charity spent on helping patients copays went to patients taking Celgene drugs, yeah. for example, and so the IRS has sent summonses to six different drug companies asking for more information about their donations, including Biogen and Johnson & Johnson and Roche and Novartis and Bayer. And they're looking into this very carefully and, um, you know, whether and whether – they're looking into specifically whether this charity, you know, uh, has a right to retain its tax-exempt status. Uh, So this could – and and, yeah –
0: Right. Uh, I, I, so... It's a it's a wonderful story, Robert. Thank you very much for bringing it to our attention. Robert Langreth is a healthcare reporter for Bloomberg, and uh, I really recommend this story. A charity funded by drug makers draws IRS probe on tax exemption. So a very interesting uh, bit because the, the amount of money that we're talking about, uh, for example, Celgene uh, gave forty two million, Genentech fourteen million, Novartis three four yeah. million, and so on. Well,
1: to me, the issue though really is. What you exactly nailed, which which is the tax exemption they get for putting revenue back in their pockets, A kind of interesting uh, spin cycle.
0: Do you know that uh, 27,000 flights and 2.2 million passengers take to the skies in the United States every day? And that means a lot of coordination, and unfortunately, it means a lot of delays for many travelers. Here to tell us more about the air traffic control system is James Burnley. He is a partner at uh, Venable, uh, but uh, more importantly for our topic today, he is the former U.S. Secretary of Transportation from 1987 to 1989. And just uh, full disclosure, Venable is a lobbying firm which represents American Airlines. Mr. Burnley, thank you very much for joining us. Can you describe the current state of the air traffic control system?
4: Well, good morning. I'm delighted to be with you. The system is very safe, and uh, our controllers keep it that way by gradually slowing it down because they're working with outdated equipment. Um, And uh, we are at at this moment uh, at the lowest ebb in 28 years, in terms of fully qualified controllers. Uh, But again, I emphasize the system is safe. Uh, There is a um, major effort underway in Congress as we speak uh, to separate the air traffic control system from the federal government. Sixty other countries have taken similar actions in the last 25 years. Because we're trying to run a 24-hour day, day seven-day-a-week, incredibly complicated business serving those 27,000 flights a day. And it's bound up in federal red tape and procurement rules and personnel rules. It gets caught in budget fights, and it's just no way to run a big business.
1: So uh, there's data showing that about half of all flight delays are a result of air traffic control inefficiencies, um, which is uh, rather stunning, in my opinion. And you were talking about how there are currently discussions ongoing in Congress to uh, move the FAA to a nonprofit that is separate from the government. Uh, What surprises me is that there is quite a bit of opposition to this plan. Can you talk about why There has been a sort of party divide about whether or not to privatize the FAA and why there has been, frankly, in the past, bipartisan opposition to this move.
4: Well, let me go at it slightly differently, if I could. Um, In the mid-1990s, the first really serious, uh, well-thought-out proposal to take this step was made by the Clinton administration, and it did not go anywhere in Congress. The Bush administration, Bush 43, um, attempted a sort of a reduced version of what Clinton had proposed. The current proposal is modeled on what the Canadians did in the mid 90s, and that is to spin off air traffic control into a nonprofit corporation. It has a board uh, that is appointed by the various users of the system, and it has worked incredibly well. Um, So that's what we're debating today. Um, We find opposition. from several quarters, but support comes from the Air Traffic Controllers Union for this reform, as well as most of the major airlines. The primary voice of opposition is an association that represents the corporate jet operators, believe it or not, and that's because they are getting heavily subsidized under the current structure. They pay a tiny fuel tax, and yet they use the same quality and quantity of services for their planes that, um, 737 Jews that are, that are flown by my client, American Airlines. So they're stirring up a lot of opposition, a lot of misinformation, and, and it has uh, unfortunately become a fairly polarized issue. It should not be. I mean, again, this is, this is an issue that back in the 90s, the Democratic administration of Bill Clinton and Al Gore worked very hard to try to push.
0: Mr. Burnley, can you describe the technological improvements that would be gained by having a revamped system and finally getting something 21st century in place?
4: Let me give you one example that I think is very stark. Um, Our controllers today keep track of the planes that that individual controller is responsible for on paper strips. The Canadians got rid of paper strips in 2012. The FAA has a contract today. If all goes perfectly, will mean that we get rid of paper strips in our only in our eighty nine bus- busiest facilities by twenty twenty eight. So we're talking about a plan that leaves paper strips in use in many of the smaller facilities.
0: Why is this taking so long? Halfway through so- this
4: century. Well, again, we're talking about. Um, federal budget fights. For example, the first time we did sequestration in 2013, the FAA closed down the training academy in Oklahoma. It took nearly a year to get the pipeline filled back up with trainees. Um, The uh, inspector general at DOT, the GAO, which as you know is the investigative arm of Congress, um, have written countless reports over the last 30 years about the disconnects and simply trying to buy new equipment that you get because of appropriations issues, because of Congress doing 23 short-term extensions in the early 2000s of the FAA's basic authorizing legislation. We're trying to run this huge, complex, seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day business, and you just can't do it. Within the federal government, expect the kinds of outcomes that we all do expect.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's clearly uh, a bit of a mess, and, and it seems like everybody agrees with that and it needs to be modernized there are two big issues that strike me as compelling arguments uh, for why the FAA has not been privatized first of all there's a security issue right because uh, this is a crucial uh, nexus of transportation for the US and if that could be compromised in any way uh, that could be a you know really a, a huge issue that's number one and number two uh, if the financial interest, is sort of moved even to a nonprofit. there's a question of which parties will benefit more and you know can, can sort of the needle be pushed in one direction or another how would you respond to those things
4: well security is not an issue uh... no one wants to change our current setup on security security of course for all transportation is now handled by the department of homeland security and tsa not by the air traffic control system so that would not change in any way the air traffic control system would still be regulated by the FAA. Nobody's proposing to take the whole FAA out of the government, just the air traffic control system, part of it. The FAA regulators who write all kinds of aviation safety regulations would remain within the Department of Transportation, just like the regulators at NHTSA that write regulations for safety in automobiles and and the Federal Railroad Administration and other such arms. So, that would would just not be a problem. The interests involved here, first and foremost, are the interests of passengers. And today, you can pick any two major hubs, and what you will find, because we do have an incredibly safe system, we are keeping it safe by slowing things down gradually. So that today, compared to 20 years ago, for example, between New York and Washington, the airline schedules if the planes fly according to the published schedules, are 20 to 30 minutes longer just from New York to D.C. uh, compared to 20 years ago. You can pick any other two city pairs of larger cities and you'll find similar examples. So it it is becoming a major drag on the economy, first and foremost, for those of through the passengers. And, um, thank and you very much, James Burnley. He point. is
0: a uh, former U.S. Secretary of Transportation, 1987 to 1989, currently a partner at Venable, a lobbying firm representing American Airlines, talking about the future of our air traffic control system.
1: We did get news today that Walgreens Boots Alliance scrapped its deal to purchase Rite Aid. And uh, partly this is because of the Federal Trade Commission's scrutiny of this deal as possibly violating antitrust rules. Um, Brooke Sutherland, Gadfly columnist, joins us now to give us a little bit of perspective. And Brooke, you know, Walgreens seems to be doing just fine. As, for, as far as trading goes. but So let's focus on Rite Aid, because at least based on the share activity, the activity and the equities, this looks catastrophic for them, is it?
5: Yeah, you know, it's not a great deal for Rite Aid. I, you know, I do think that Walgreens is playing a pretty decent price for the number of stores that they're getting. But, I mean, you think about it, Rite Aid is essentially giving over half of its stores – but then it still has to go on and try to compete against a Walgreens that's now going to be better off and a CVS that's already huge. And so, I mean, it's a, you really have to sort of wonder if this was really regulators' intention. Right. Where they block this deal on the premise that Walgreens and Rite Aid will will have too much pricing power and there's going to be antitrust concerns. But now you're essentially just going to be left with the exact same situation where Rite Aid is essentially not able to as effectively compete
1: well and we should just say that yes walgreens is no longer going to buy rite aid outright but they are going to purchase uh, about 2200 of rite aid stores yes. what proportion of their stores are that's
5: that... about half
1: okay
0: half right the 2100 so, something yeah, something roughly, like that yeah but i mean here, here's an interesting parallel right because in the same week that we're talking about this staples and sycamore <laughs> partners right and staples was going to buy office depot regulators nixed that deal so they tried to shop themselves around and they ended up being bought by private equity for 6.9 billion so is that what happens do you believe to the rest of Rite Aid?
5: I I think you have to ask that question. I mean, so Staples is getting purchased at a very low price. And if Rite Aid sells itself down the road, is it going to command anywhere near what it was potentially going to sell itself to Walgreens for? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think... Retail in general is in a tough spot. Drugstore type things people are increasingly going to Amazon for. Um, And like I said, they're in a tough spot now where they have to compete against a a much larger competitor that's now getting even bigger. Um, And I think, you know, the real sort of question here is, is do regulators need to change their sort of paradigm for the way that they view these deals? Amazon has clearly changed the retail landscape? And is it really, can you really justify saying that these companies will be too strong when they're combined and have too much pricing power? Or do you have to maybe take a step back and rethink this? Because the end result is And look a little bit
0: into the future.
5: Exactly. Yeah, the end result is that you, you know, prevent these companies from combining, but do you, you know, some of them may not be able to survive on their own. I think that's certainly true for Staples Office Depot. You know, when you look down the road, will they ever be back to what they were? No. And I don't think Rite Aid is necessarily going to be back to what it was either. It may continue on, but it's not going to be, you know, in a position of strength.
1: So what what do you think Rite Aid's uh, rationalization was for agreeing to sell just the stores and not itself?
5: They have not been doing very well. Their results have gotten significantly weaker since when they originally agreed to sell to Walgreens. And this deal was actually already amended once before partly because Rite Aid's results had deteriorated, partly because they were already sort of getting pushback from antitrust authorities and they amended the deal to try to head off some of those complaints. Um, You know, I think Rite Aid is maybe looking for a cash infusion and to to just sort of do something.
1: But You know what's interesting is that their their share price is down about 25%, but their bond prices are surging. And this is compelling to me because basically this indicates that bond traders are saying something happened where they have more cash and we're going to get paid. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that their growth prospects are any better is that an accurate reading
5: yeah I think so I think that's a good way of looking at it. I mean on the other hand if you do have a smaller store count that is maybe not a bad place to be in as a retailer in general these days but they have to use this cash in the right way how do they actually make their stores more profitable because they're not all that profitable right now how do you get people coming in there how do you compete with Amazon how do you compete with Walgreens I mean they really have to use this money in the right way
0: well, I was going to just uh, ask, you know, this infusion of uh, cash, right, from uh, Walgreens, as you mentioned, uh, Lisa, the stock is down about 25% of Rite Aid. Um, this just really shows that bondholders, bond investors, they only care about getting paid back. They really don't have an interest in whether the company is going to be a successful company in the future or not. They just want to get paid for the bonds that they hold. Is that a decent uh description
1: yeah i mean that the, the, well right and, and there's just a different calculation it's not about how much the company is going to grow uh but this it's not also... about the
0: company at all they don't really care as long as they get the money from the bonds right
1: but it indicates to me that these bondholders do not think that right is going to file for bankruptcy anytime soon
5: no and i you know i don't think they're hovering on the brink here i guess my point about the regulators is just sort of the longer term question about the the survivor nature of these companies and, you know, how strong they're truly going to be if you don't allow them to go through with these deals. For Staples Office Depot, I really do believe that that merger was sort of their best hope. And you could combine the companies and sort of take out the cost and work on making the business that they do have as profitable as possible and sort of have that scale to take on the Amazons and the Walmarts and everyone else out there. And now you instead have Staples selling to a private equity firm and, the end game here is still really sort of a question mark.
0: I want to thank you very much for joining us. Brooke Sutherland is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering deals. And uh, as we learned, Walgreens buying those 2,100 stores. She's awesome. Right Read her columns. Yes, she's awesome. I, well, I was going to Yeah. See, yes, of course.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.